0: All right, everyone, welcome back from lunch. We're going to keep this conference running like the well-oiled machine that it is and start right back up at 1. My name is Thomas Berry. I'm a research fellow here in Cato's Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. And this was my first year as managing editor of the review, where I had a front row seat to just how insanely hard Trevor has to work to make this happen, and how insanely cooperative and timely and patient our authors have to be to make this happen. So my thanks to Trevor, to all of our authors, and everyone Trevor named and thanked in the first panel. Uh, every year at Constitution Day, there's one panel that seemingly doesn't have as coherent a theme as the others. Sometimes we even call it the potpourri category as if we're on Jeopardy. Although, even with our four panels today, we still won't have nearly as many hosts as Jeopardy has had this year. And you might think that this is the potpourri panel with the odd combination of a tech case, a criminal law case, and a takings case. But I would beg to differ. In fact, Not only are these three cases all connected by being about property rights, broadly defined, they're also all three about the scope of reasonable incursions on others' property. How many lines of someone else's programming code can be copied without paying them? And does it matter what that code does? Under what circumstances can the police or other government actors enter your property without permission because they suspect a medical or other non-criminal emergency? And can a government regulation allow lengthy, uncompensated entrances onto your property by people you'd otherwise prefer to keep out for some supposedly public benefit? In other words, all three cases that are going to be discussed on this panel ask when others can permissibly cross our property lines without permission, in both the literal sense of a line, such as a home's entryway or a private field's boundary, and in the digital sense of a line of code. Here to discuss these three cases, we have three distinguished scholars, one of them from the home team here at Cato. I'll introduce them one at a time before each of them speaks. As always, we abbreviate the intros here so we have more time to hear from the panelists themselves and because you can read their full bios in the review, which you all have. And I'd like to remind our online audience to submit questions on our event webpage at Cato's website or on Twitter using the hashtag CatoScotus, Cato, S-C-O-T-U-S. First is Adam Mossoff. He is a professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School, George Mason University. Adam also serves on the board of directors of the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding and is a senior fellow and chair for intellectual property at the Hudson Institute. He previously served as a Heritage Foundation fellow. Adam will be speaking about Google versus Oracle. Adam?
1: Adam? Yeah.
2: Thank you, Tommy. Um, it's a pleasure to uh, to see everyone, although uh, although still masked. But uh, but uh, but at least we're seeing each other. It's a step in, in at least in the right direction. Um, and um, uh, and I appreciate that you uh, I uh, didn't go into all these details. As I was telling Tommy, you know, it, academics collect titles, and so it ends up being a lot like the Game of Thrones, where you're like Professor of Law and 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 Visiting Fellow and a Killer of Dragons and and all sorts of things. Um, and, um, and I also am not using PowerPoint. Um, as, a, as a committed classical liberal, um, I am a, a long-standing believer in Lord Acton's lesser-known dictum that if power corrupts, PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. So, uh, so <clears throat> you'll have to just listen. So, um <laughs> so I'm speaking today, of course, about, uh, about the case Google versus Oracle. Um <clears throat> And what's uh, very interesting about this case um, is that it represents a, sig- uh, a significant point about the protection of, of, of computer software programs in our innovation economy and in the high tech sector more specifically. But it also represents something a little more interesting that I discovered in when the case came down, which is that, the past 50 years has represented the personal computer and software revolution in our society, starting in the 1970s. It was in the 70s. The Apple II the Apple, uh, comes, first comes out, and when you have the development of personal computing uh, capabilities and operating systems that run on general purpose computers. And in 1970, then professor of law at Harvard Law School, Stephen Breyer writes in a very famous article called The Uneasy Case for Copyright, where he largely concedes that he doesn't think there is one, but there might be in some minor small cases that, quote, computer programs should not receive copyright protection at the present time, end quote. Um, Writing almost 50 years later now, in 2001, in Google v. Oracle, uh, now Justice Breyer concludes that Google is not liable for copyright infringement for copying 11,500 lines of code from Oracle's Java program. Now, this was a blockbuster case, um, and not just because of this nice little bookend of the past 50 years by Justice Breyer. Um, It it represented a clash of titans in the high-tech sector, Google versus Oracle. Um, It represented the first time ever that the Supreme Court promised to answer uh, the question of the copyrightability of, uh, of computer software code. And it, re- it reflected the first time in several decades that the Supreme Court was addressing the issue of fair use doctrine and copyright. Um, and it was the very first time that the Supreme Court was applying the doctrine of fair use to the copying of a computer software program. It was the decision was 6-2 with Justice Breyer writing the opinion. Um, <clears throat> Justice Thomas and Alito. Justice Thomas dissented. who was joined by Justice Alito. And the reason why it's 6-2 is because Justice Barrett didn't participate in the, in the opinion because she had not been yet confirmed by the Senate at the time the oral argument was held in November. Now, this opinion is really radical, and I can't go into all the aspects of it, so I'm just going to touch on some of the basic details of it in my opening remarks, and hopefully we can get into some of the, some of the issues, um, both in the tech space and in the copyright and innovation policy space um, in, in the question and answer period. But the opinion is really radical and novel in both its substance and form, um, and just in its decision. Because this is the very first time that the US Supreme Court has held that an explicit copying by a commercial actor for a commercial purpose to create what ends up being a competing product in the marketplace is not copyright infringement because it is in fact counts as fair use that That is a radical decision um, and in uh, Justice Thomas in his dissent. Repeatedly points out this point and how radical it is. Now, to fully understand that, I need, of course, I think I want to give you the background of the case, a little bit of the tech background. It's really easy for people like me who are tech geeks, but um, but I, I recognize that not everyone lives in the world of code um, and and understands APIs and th- throws on acronyms like this. Um, I guess that's how people al- often feel when non-lawyers are talking to lawyers. Um, so um, so first, I'll give the background, both the tech. uh, Background, the commercial background between Oracle um, and what, uh, between Google and what was then uh, Sun Microsystems before it got purchased by Oracle. And then I'll talk about the case um, and discuss some of the implications of it before I sit down. All right. So, the background. So, this case involved. Um, as I mentioned, Google's copying of 11,500 lines of code from a program known as Java. Now, most of you probably know Java. Um, You've you've seen the little coffee cup icon at some point or other in your computer screen or or in some other uh, mobile device. Java is a program that effectively enables the the various programs that you have on your smartphones and in your laptop computers and on your desktop computers to communicate with other programs. So it's not a program that you directly use as what we in Tech Geeks uh, speak call an end user. You are just end users. You're not people. You're end users. You don't experience the the Java program. You, uh, You use Word. You use your email client. You use Excel. You use your browser. But how your browser and how Word and how your email client communicate with your operating system, with the server, so when you send your email and it goes to your main server and how that server then communicates with the internet uh, uh, backbone and the servers running the internet and then they communicate with the server computer server receiving the email on the other end and so on and so on are done through programs that are go uh, that are referred to as application program interfaces. So these are programs that are under the hood, so to speak, uh, to use a car metaphor uh, in your computer that you don't directly experience. But these are the programs that allow your different computer programs to interact with each other flawlessly. So you can send your email, check your te- send a text, check uh, surf the web, and do other things that my students unfortunately do during class. So uh, so um, <coughs> so. The, um, so these programs go by the acronym APIs. Um, so, um, and, and, they, and Java is a very successful API. So it was. So we are now going to go back to ancient history, um, and the year is 1995. So if this was, if you're watching this on a streaming show, you would, the, ca, the camera would fade out, and you would see 1995 again, and Friends would be on, and uh, <laughs> and Seinfeld, and uh, we you know we'd be listening to grunge rock. Um, and 1995, Sun Microsystems comes up with Java. Now Java is a really radical. API, because Java is capable of running on any machines. So all you have to do is, you, as a computer developer, you're writing a program, or a computer manufacturer creating a laptop, is put what's called a Java virtual machine, which is a program that works uh, on, on, on the computer device. And any other device, regardless of whether it's an Apple device, whether it's an Android, whether it's, a, uh, whether it's Windows, whether it's anything, can run the program that you're running on it. It's how you can send an email from your you know, Windows system to an Apple system, and so on and so on. And uh, this is a small example of an API. So in fact, uh, Sun, uh, Sun Microsystems' uh, uh, motto was, write once, run anywhere. And so the key to it, as you see, is interoperability, which is what Drove the internet, the explosion of the internet, and this is why Java became so successful, and massive successful program, and therefore Sun Microsystems, which was later purchased by Oracle in 2009, um, is, which is why it's Google v. Or, uh, ends up being uh, Google v. Oracle at Supreme Court. Um, <clears throat> this becomes extremely successful, and they make tens of billions of dollars licensing this program to other com- uh, computer uh, program uh, ma- uh, creators and manu- uh, computer manufacturers. So. Um <clears throat> the the so this is an incredibly successful program and google is coming up now with its android uh, phone system and it wants to use that phone system and it w- or it wants its phone system to be successful so it enters into licensing negotiations with with i'm just going to start referring to it as oracle because oracle purchased on microsystems with oracle these negotiations fail because while google wants android to be open source it doesn't want it to be interoperable so in fact while android is open source in fact it's proprietary open source you can't run something on Android on anything um, and this is because Google makes money by collecting data on its users and and then selling that data and acquiring other information that's their business model that's why they're willing to quote give away their Android systems for free um, but Oracle made money by licensing its programs. And in fact, it had three licensing programs. Two were paid, and one was actually open source. But it was true open source. It was GPL, uh, so it required interoperability. Google wanted open source, but not interoperability. And so of course, the licensing negotiations broke down. And so Google did what Google sometimes does, it just it just took the program to make, their computer, uh, to make their Android phone successful, immediately usable by programmers, and the rest is history. The Android is the largest selling phone in the world, incredibly successful, and Google has made tens and tens of billions of dollars off of it. All right, so <coughs> Oracle sues, understandably. You, you directly copied our program. And the case raised two issues. Is the program copyrightable in the first place? And secondly, even if it is, was Google's use of it fair use? And, and then the, third, the court added a third issue on its own about the standard of review. And that ended up being the proverbial dog that, didn't, that doesn't bark uh, um, because it didn't really play a role in the case. And so I'm not going to uh, talk about that. All right, so the copyrightability issue. So this is what actually most of the oral argument was spent on um, and, um, and a lot of the briefing was spent on. And it's really surprising, because in the opinion, Breyer skips over their copyrightability. In one sentence, they say, we shall assume for the sake of argument that the, that the Java API program and the declaring code within it that was copied by, by Google is copyrightable. Um, <coughs> excuse me. and. Um, and th- as I mentioned, this was really strange because it took up a substantial portion of the oral argument. I um, mean, in fact, at one point, Justice Kagan says, I'm surprised and confused by the nature of Google's arguments about the copyrightability of, the- of this code. Gorsuch agreed with her. And if you're a lawyer appearing before the US Supreme Court, and you've got both Kagan on one side and Gorsuch on the other both saying, we agree with each other that your argument is surprising and confusing. You're not in a good spot to be in. And the reason why they were surprised and confused is because there was a long standing debate about whether, the- about whether computer software should be copyrightable. Copy- copyrightable. copyrightable or not going back to the 1960s and congress stepped in in 1980 and said we're resolving this, 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 uh, this dispute definitively and they passed a law and just to be very clear they didn't come up with some fancy acronym for this law you know like the patriot act or something like that they called this law the computer software copyright act in 1980 and it's explicit and clear it says Quote, a computer program is a set of statements or instructions to be used directly or indirectly in a computer in order to bring about a certain result, end quote. And it says, and that computer program is copyrightable. And notice, it's expansive. It includes any computer program, directly or indirectly. It doesn't make distinctions between types of computer programs, whether you're Word or an API. It says all computer programs are copyrightable. Now, Google was arguing, well, but... This this program is functional in nature, and it's the only you know it's it's not really just an expression. It's how the computer works, and that's not what copyright is about. That's what you get patent laws about, and things of this sort. Um, This is called the method of operation argument or merger idea that the idea that that the expression is so intimately connected with the nature of a function of doing something that you can't separate the two, and then therefore the expression isn't copyrightable as expression because you're actually getting copyright protection for this broader purpose this abstract idea that you can't do it but <clears throat> but the Statutory tax is explicit, so Justice Breyer is basically doing what you expect Justice Breyer to do, in uh, in um, <clears> that that we've seen him do in economic liberty cases, and in uh, and, and, and other and in, and in other areas where he has his policy preferences that he made very clear in 1970, and he's going to and he's going to get a. a implement those policy preferences, although he can't do it through the statute, so he skips over the statute. But he makes it very clear that, well, this is just for the sake of argument. And later he says, if it's copyrightable at all, in fact, then fair use doctrine applies. Um, And Justice Thomas, rightly in his dissent, calls him out on this and says, hey, if you had actually addressed the the copyrightability issue front and center, you would have realized that this can't be fair use. Um, Now, how do we what happened with the fair use analysis? Um, so the fair use analysis, Justice Breyer emphasizes emphatically that well this is, this is an equitable doctrine, and so we can we can address it in a very open uh, and different way. For those you who don 't know fair use, fair use is uh, the a doctrine that goes back to 1841, case Folsom v. Marsh, and, uh, Justice Story, where Justice Story said, yes, copyright is private property that's protected against piracy. He actually used that term. But sometimes there are exceptions um, when you don't have an interference with the market of the copyrighted work. This was eventually codified in 1976 by Congress in Section 107 with four factors um, that are applied by courts. They're, they look at the purpose and character of the uh, use, including whether it's commercial, They look at the nature of the copyrighted work. They look at the amount and substantiality of of its use and the effect on the market or the value of the work. So you can see that largely the, the focus here is on whether you're interfering with the market use or market value of the work. In fact, this explains why the key concept in fair use doctrine is this idea of, is the use transformative? In that sense, is how are they taking it out of the relevant market context and the relevant commercial uses by the copyright owner and using it in some other way? Classic example is you use a movie or a story like Friends or Seinfeld for comedic purposes or parody yourself. Um, so, you're as as a, as, a, as another type of parody, you're not actually interfering with the direct use of that of that of that product. So. <clears throat> So Breyer says, well, I'm going to exploit the equitable nature of, of this doctrine um, and start with factor two, which courts almost never do. Factor two is the nature of the of the of the copyrighted work. And he says, Well, this is code. This is functional. This is a user interface. And therefore it gets thin copyright protection. Well, if you're sensing a sense of deja vu about this is functional, this is a user interface, if that was Google's argument against under the copyrightability issue you're not mistaken. That is. So you can see that he's smuggling into fair use these issues that had to have been addressed under the copyrightability assessment that were clearly precluded by the statutory text of the Copyright Act. Um, And and then he downplays, he says, well, coding is, is, is straightforward. It's just mechanical. He compares it to uh, cooking recipes, the QWERTY keyboard, a gas pedal—these are all of his metaphors, in the opinion. Um, even a programmable cooking robot. Um, but those of us who are tech geeks would be a little surprised by that, because we know, in fact, coding can be very creative and often is creative. Um, and in fact, yep. Um, and in fact, um, you know, we aspire for the elegant solution. I'm now out of time, so I will. Um, I'll just note at in conclu- in conclusion that. Um, that, uh, that he engages in a very expansive notion of what counts as transformative, that well, if you're implying in- it to a new use, then that counts as transformative, but new uses can, can are covered by the Copyright Act. If you take a co- Harry Potter book, and put it into a space context, you will be sued by JK Rowling for the use of Harry Potter, even though you put it into a space context. And therefore, what's really going on here at the end of the day is that Google wanted a successful Android phone. It wanted to launch it immediately. It wanted the value of Java. It it had a business model that was not compatible with the business model that Java would have required it to implement and therefore it took Java and put it into this new business model, and it was succeeded. And the Supreme Court, through Justice Breyer, let them get away with it. So thank you.
0: All right, great. Thank you, Adam. Uh, next up, we our next speaker is Christopher Slobogan who is the Milton R. Underwood Chair in Law and Director of the Criminal Justice Program at Vanderbilt Law School and Affiliate Professor of Psychiatry at Vanderbilt School of Medicine. Uh, He is an Associate Reporter at the American Law Institute's Principles of Police Investigation Project Before joining the faculty at Vanderbilt, he taught at several institutions, including my alma mater, Stanford Law School, and the University of Kiev, Ukraine, where he was a Fulbright Scholar. And he will be speaking on Coniglia versus Strom. Christopher?
3: Well, first of all, I want to say how happy I am to be here in person. It's terrific. And to commemorate this occasion, I wore my Declaration of Independence tie, not only because it's the Cato Institute, but because I feel I'm finally independent from this virus because I can now come to an in-person conference. Now, as Tom said, I'm gonna be talking about police invasions of property. Um, Like a lot of us, over the last couple of years in particular, I've been thinking about the role the police should play in American society, and it's it's certainly plausible to argue that we've allowed the police to gobble up too much power in the guise of protecting community safety. So when the Cato Institute asked me to pick a Supreme Court opinion to write about this term, I settled on Conigli versus Strom, which is a Supreme Court case which deals with the so called community caretaker exception to the warrant requirement to uh, the Fourth Amendment. Um, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to explore in a relatively nuanced way the policing role in the United States, particularly given the First Circuit's opinion in this case, which declared that police are the preeminent community, care, community caretakers, caretakers of the community. And it turns out that the subsequent Supreme Court opinion in Caniglia did provide a springboard for talking about the police role in a number of different areas. I'm going to focus on three, uh, the role of the police in dealing with people who have mental illness, uh, the scope of the so-called emergency aid exception, and the scope of the special needs exception to the warrant requirement. So I'm going to start with talking about police and people with mental illness. So probably a lot of you know a huge proportion of 911 calls to the police involve situations uh, involving people who have uh, mental illness there's a significant number of 911 calls every day that deal with that kind of situation uh, people with mental illness might be suicidal they might have scared other people their family might have had, had finally given up taking care of them and called the police for that purpose unfortunately the police are precisely the wrong people to call in many of these situations why because they're armed and they're trained to use force and when in doubt they often use that force and often use those weapons, even when the research shows they've been trained in crisis intervention. So as a result, in the last five years, 25% of the people killed by the police have been mentally ill. And another hammer that the police have is, of course, the authority to arrest. Far too often, people with mental illness end up in jail as opposed to in treatment where they should be. Some of you may have heard of the CAHOOTS program, strangely named program in Eugene, Oregon. And it's demonstrated, beyond Caville that it is possible to handle these kinds of situations without the police at all. Just having mental health professionals there who know how to handle these kinds of situations can often be the way to deal with, situ- uh, with, with people who have mental illness. So how does all this re- relate to the Caniglia decision? Well, Everett Coniglia was a severely depressed individual, was contemplating suicide. His wife called the police. Now, why didn't she call the Community Mental Health Center? Well, maybe there wasn't one in this area, but most likely it's because you call the police when you got a problem. That's what you do. Um, I don't blame her for calling the police. I think the problem lies with the dispatcher. 911 dispatchers need to know enough to ask the right kinds of questions to determine what the situation's all about, To triage. Ask the right questions, figure out if there's imminent harm, and if not, send in a local caregiver. Well, that's not what happened in the Coniglia case. Instead, the police were sent. Now, fortunately, no violence ensued in this case. Okay? There was no violence, but still, the point remains that in a lot of these cases, a trained mental health professional with no weapons whatsoever is the best kind of person. To deal with this kind of situation bottom line is police are not always the optimal caretakers Um, so the second issue my article talks about is what happened after the police took Edward to the hospital they went back to his house and seized his guns and since they didn't have a warrant authorizing them to do so coniglia claimed his fourth amendment rights were violated Um, now the state argued in response that hey this is just a community caretaker exception and they got that phrase from a 1973 supreme court case katie versus dombrowski which stated that uh, involving a car search where the court stated that police quote frequently investigate vehicle accidents in which there is no claim of criminal liability and engage in what for want of a better term may be described as community caretaking functions totally divorced from the detection investigation or acquisition of evidence relating to a violation of a criminal statute so the police caniglia, the state was arguing, were not involved in the detection, investigation, or acquisition of criminal evidence, so they didn't need a warrant. And the First Circuit agreed. Uh, the First Circuit stated, quote, a police officer over and above his weighty responsibilities for enforcing the criminal law must provide an infinite variety of services to preserve and protect community safety. And here's the interesting part. The Supreme Court reversed the First Circuit unanimously, which, of course, is a relatively rare event these days. And in a four-page opinion, which also is relatively rare at the Supreme Court level. Um, and in siding with Coniglia, the court said that a warrantless entry is not permitted unless there's true exigency, unless imminent harm is impending. Um, and since Everett was not in the home at the time the police went in to seize the guns, there wasn't this kind of exigency. So therefore, the Fourth Amendment was violated. In other words, police responded to the First Circuit said police are not authorized to provide an infinite variety of services to preserve and protect community safety, at least if those services require entry into a home. And Justice Alito, in a concurring opinion, stated flatly, there is no freestanding community caretaker exception to the warrant requirement. And I think most of the justices agree with this. However, there were were a couple of other concurring opinions, uh, one by Chief Justice Roberts, which perhaps wanted to inject a little caveat to this notion that Justice Alito broached in his occurring opinion. And he, he made his concern apparent with the question uh, during oral argument addressed to Coniglia's attorney, where he said, well, what if this happens? Could, could the police do a warrantless entry if they got a call, if they were responding to a call from neighbors of an elderly woman who they had invited to dinner two hours earlier, who had not shown up, who did not respond to calls that had not been seen leaving their house? What did Coniglia's attorney say? No, they could not make a warrantless entry for at least 24 hours. And if they were going to make an entry after that time, they needed a missing person warrant in order to go into the house. Well, you could tell that a lot of the justices weren't very happy with that, ranging from Roberts to our friend Justice Breyer, um, who also joined Roberts' concurring opinion. So I think there certainly are definitions of the what courts call the emergency aid exception, which is what Just, Chief Justice Roberts hypothetical deals with, um, that avoid going down the rabbit hole that Conigli's attorney did. So in my article, I talk about a possible formulation which would require probable cause to believe serious physical injury either has occurred or is likely to occur. And immediate assistance from the police is thereby needed. Now, there are a lot of restrictions in that formulation. But I think, actually, despite all the restrictions, it would still produce the result that I think Chief Justice Roberts wanted as hypothetical. If the police were the only available option, and that's an important part of my formulation, the police have to be the only good available option. If they are, they show up, they check the neighbor's story, uh, it checks out, they knock on the door, and no one responds, then they'd be able to go in under this formulation. But at the same time, um, it does require true exigency. It requires an emergency. Um, And thus, it avoids what criminal law scholars and criminal procedure scholars often call pretextual police actions. Why would it avoid those? At least it's my hope it would avoid those. Because police normally would have to explain themselves to a magistrate before they went in. So it would deter, for instance, police claiming, oh, we heard a loud noise, or there was a door that was ajar, or we knocked on the door and no one came to it immediately as a ruse, would prevent them from using those kinds of statements as a ruse to get into a house without a warrant. And by the way, if you look at lower court cases, there are all sorts of cases like this. Some of them involving people who turned out to be criminals, some of them being 1983 suits asking for damages from the police because they barged into a home pretextually. the formulation that I just advanced is meant to try to avoid that, uh, but of course there's another solution to all of this as well. Uh, going back to what I said earlier, and that is to avoid police involvement entirely. I mean, think about Chief Justice Roberts' hypothetical again. Why send in a cop at all? Why shouldn't it be a social worker who responds to this situation? There's no need for armed force in this kind of situation with all the potential chaos that might create. And so that segues to my third and final point, um, which deals with how courts might approach the many searches and seizures which the courts have dubbed special needs situations, which often occur outside the home as opposed to inside the home. Um, this first Supreme Court opinion using the special needs phrase was New Jersey versus TLO, which involved a search of a school child's purse for cigarettes without a warrant and a less than probable cause. And in upholding that search, uh, the court stated, well, actually, this is Justice Blackmun's concurring opinion, the state of this, but it's been language now. that has been picked up by other Supreme Court cases. That school searches involve, quote, exceptional circumstances in which special needs beyond the normal need for law enforcement make the warrant and probable cause requirements impracticable. You can see how this resonates with the community caretaking exception, right? In both those situations, where we're not dealing with criminal law enforcement, at least allegedly, this special needs kind of language, the, the court later applied to an entirely different set of cases involving searches and seizures of groups in the complete absence of suspicion. Here, I'm talking about, for instance, uh, home safety inspections or illegal immigrant checkpoints, or license checkpoints, or drug programs, programmatic kinds of searches and seizures. The court has also just used special needs lingo to justify those kinds of situations because, the court says, they don't involve ordinary crime control. They're outside of the usual criminal investigation setting, at least according to the court. Now, the court's special needs jurisprudence has been criticized by lots of people, including me. But the point I want to make here is a little bit more circumscribed, it is whatever The Fourth Amendment should say with respect to situations where it's school officials or inspectors who are engaging in a search and seizure, when it's the police who are involved in these kinds of special needs situations, then we are most likely to be concerned about misuse of force and pretextual actions. And thus, in those situations, at least, the Fourth Amendment's constraints ought to apply with full force. So what does that mean with respect to the two variants of special needs, searches and seizures that I've been talking about? Well, the, restra- the constraints are clear with respect to the first variant, that is, focused on a particular individual, like in the TLO case. There, the usual warrant and probable cause and agency requirements ought to apply. So, for instance, um, if a school resource officer is, in fact, a cop in disguise with a weapon and with the ability to invest, with training in investigating criminal situations, then I think that kind of search, even for a school disciplinary infraction, as occurred in TLO, ought to be based on a warrant or something like it in the absence of agency. And the second special needs variant, which involves, remember, search and seizures of groups, like inspections uh, and checkpoints and so on, an individualized suspicion requirement doesn't work because we're dealing with a suspicionless search and seizure of groups. But there still can be significant regulation of these kinds of situations, especially when the police are involved. I think there has to be. And I think the most effective way of reducing or preventing arbitrary police action is in these kinds of cases, is require statutory authorization of the program, um, even handed implementation across the entire targeted group and a ban on pretextual actions. So for instance, uh, police should not be able to set up license checkpoints anytime they want to and in any neighborhood they want to with drug sniffing dogs waiting in the wings. Instead, there has to be statutory authorization of providing neutral criteria for when and where checkpoints are, may be set up. And seizures have to be based on a predetermined basis. Every individual, every fifth individual, something like that. And drug dogs could not be involved at all unless the statute specifically authorized. So, in other words, what I'm saying is application of Coniglas versus Strom's rejection of a freestanding caretaker exception to special needs situations would curb police overuse of their administrative authority, uh, especially its use of that authority as a pretext to engage in legislatively unauthorized agendas. Uh, but that's only if the police are needed at all. And this goes back to my original point. The more important question is whether police should be involved in school searches, inspections, checkpoints, and so on in the first place. Because I think, um, and again, this is, this is expanding Caniglia a little bit, but what I think one could certainly argue after Caniglia is that a sustain for the caretaker exception now makes. This kind of question, should the police be involved at all, uh, constitutionally pertinent from now on. And most generally, repeating my overall theme, Coniglia's rejection of a freestanding caretaker exception provides doctrinal support for the fledgling movement to de-police those government services that, whatever might be their tradition, do not require armed individuals trained to fight crime. Thank you.
0: All right, great. Uh, thank you. And finally, we have my own boss, Ilya Shapiro. So pressure's on to get this intro right. Ilya is a vice president and director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Ilya is also the chairman of the Board of Advisors of the Mississippi Justice Institute and a member of the Virginia Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And Ilya will be speaking on Cedar Point Nursery versus Haseed. Ilya?
4: Thanks very much, Tommy. You did a nice job yourself uh, on the first panel. Um, So I guess uh, Tommy described me as being a member of the home team, and I'm also like he was a pinch hitter um, because Greg Sisk, uh, who with uh, our associate Sam Spiegelman co-authored the the article on this case, uh, was not able uh, to be here. Um, I actually consider this uh, Cedar Point case to be the most important one of the whole term. Uh, It's not the one that got all the uh, attention or controversy. That would probably be the the election regulation case you'll hear about in the next panel. Um, It it, it wasn't one that, um, I don't know, was supposed to be the blockbuster, like a religious liberty case that you heard about in the the last panel. But I think in terms of longstanding uh, impact on the direction of the law, uh, as I'll describe, I think it's pretty uh, important. Uh, And I'll agree with my uh, former uh, law school how do you call it, when Adam Mossoff was not my classmate, he was a year ahead of me, and so anyway my, my former law school attendee, uh, I don't know what the, the term is, Adam uh, mentor, sure, I will accept that I will accept that, that that PowerPoint is not only, PowerPoint not only corrupts absolutely, but it's unconstitutional, at least as applied in 90% of cases and so I won't be using that uh, uh, either, although I was, Adam, disappointed that there there were not enough Star Wars references, or even references to your new motorcycle, which is quite snazzy, I've seen check it out on Facebook, he has, he has a new Motorcycle. Uh, and uh, our other panelist, Chris Slavogan, he and I, we didn't arrange this, but he and I have the same tie, his in gold, mine in blue. So lots of uh, residents on this panel. So why is this case so important? Well, it, it, it undertakes um, uh, somewhat of a shift in, in our understanding of property rights and their enforcement. Uh, the California Agricultural Labor Relations Act granted labor groups a right to take access to uh, agricultural property to seek support for unionization. Under this regulation, agricultural employers had to allow union access onto their property for up to three hours a day, 120 days a year, a third of the year, three hours a day, a third of the year. Chief Justice Roberts, uh, writing for a 6-3 to three majority, I hope I'm not, uh, you know, uh, at this point it's not spoiler alert. If you're here, you probably are aware with how this case was decided. But Chief Justice Roberts, writing for a 6-3 to three, uh, majority, takes the complaint's uh, allegation of facts and runs with them. And he clues, in, clues us in right from the beginning of his opinion uh, how uh, the court is going to rule. So, in October 2015, at 5 o'clock in the morning... Members of United Farm Workers entered Cedar Point's property. Cedar Point is, a, is a, a, a strawberry nursery. Uh, the organizers moved to the nursery's trim shed where hundreds of workers were preparing strawberry plants. Calling through bullhorns, the organizers disturbed operations, causing some workers to join the organizers in a protest and others to leave the work site altogether. And there's a similar story at Fowler Packing Company, which is a Fresno-based grower and shipper of table grapes. So Cedar Point uh, sought declaratory and injunctive relief uh, against the California Agricultural Labor Relations Board to stop them from enforcing the, the regulation. The district court ruled against them, as did the Ninth Circuit, reasoning that there were only three kinds of regulatory takings. A regulation that affects a permanent physical invasion. So the case of Loretto, where, albeit it was small, just a cable box that was uh, on uh, the property owner's property. But that was a permanent invasion. That's a compensable taking. Regulations that deprive an owner of all economically beneficial use. So that's the Lucas case. And all others, which employ this complicated balancing test under a case called Penn Central. And and, uh, the Ninth Circuit uh, said that uh, Cedar Point was here. Uh John Roberts uh in his again majority opinion highlights Judge Ikuda's dissent uh that the Ninth Circuit decided not to uh take this case on Bonk, but there were seven judges who dissented uh and she uh, he eventually adopted her dissent as the court's opinion. Akuta wrote that the access regulation appropriated from the growers a traditional form of private property an easement in gross and transferred that property to union organizers and so uh, concluded that this was a per se physical taking under Supreme Court precedent. This was a bold leap, but not unfounded. Roberts uses some more of the same precedents that Akuda used in her uh, opinion, uh, but saying that uh, in the court's takings jurisprudence, um, there were interferences for the right to exclude. That is, if you've learned anything about basic property rights, whether in law school or otherwise, there's a bundle of sticks that that your rights, uh, uh, that that, that comport with with what your rights are. One of those is the right to exclude others from your property, and this was a clear physical violation of that. Uh, Roberts then quotes the Takings Clause. This is what we're litigating under, after all, the Fifth Amendment. Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation, and contextualizes the clause within the Founders' intense focus on property rights, quoting Adams property must be secured or liberty cannot exist, and Blackstone, not a founder, but, you know, good enough, uh, quote, that sole and despotic dominion which one man claims and exercises over the external things of the world in total exclusion of the right of any other individual in the universe. And so Roberts writes, when the government physically acquires private property for a public use, the takings clause imposes a clear and categorical obligation to provide the owner just compensation period. And then he has a laundry list of cases uh, to show why this access regulation uh, constitutes a physical taking. So the court has found that formal physical condemnations count as as per se takings, or when the government takes possession but not title, or the occupation of property without taking possession or title. And so we can see where he's going. Uh, These sorts of physical appropriations constitute the clearest sort of taking, The government must pay for what it takes. And so in this case, quote, the access regulation appropriates a right to invade the grower's property and therefore constitutes a per se physical taking. So we're not even arguing over how to balance the factors in the Penn Central regulatory taking test, which typically results in no compensation. We're just saying clear rule. The the state is giving access to a third party in perpetuity for a certain, doesn't matter that it's not, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, this is enough. There, In fact, there are cases where the court has found compensable takings when there is a temporary physical invasion of property or a permanent non-physical invasion. So this is of that ilk, things like air flight invasions, the right to fire artillery over land, um, uh, trespass by boats over waters, are takings equivalent uh, trespasses. And again, this is a straightforward uh, reading of the right to exclude. Um, Now, while the court has in the past attempted to distinguish uh, these sorts of takings from Loretto uh, uh, by calling that invasion, remember, the installation of a cable box, by saying that that permanence is the key thing here. Roberts reasons that this distinction has no bearing um, on whether a regulation that works a true physical interference is or is not a taking. In other words. The durational, how long, or the spatial uh, magnitude of an interference is a compensation question. It's not a question of whether there is a taking. So for example, to begin with, we have held that a physical appropriation is a taking whether it's permanent or temporary. Next, we've recognized that physical invasions constitute takings, even if they're intermittent as opposed to continuous. And what matters is not that the easement notionally ran around the clock, but that the government had taken a right to physically invade the land. And so he concludes this uh, passage, the upshot of this line of precedent is that government authorized invasions of property, whether by plane, boat, cable, or beachcomber, are physical takings requiring just compensation. Or in other words, because the government appropriated a right to invade, compensation uh, is due. So I think Roberts gets all of that right, Uh, whether on purpose or not. uh, He does go to some length to distinguish this new per se rule from Loretto, maybe even subsuming Loretto, again, the the, the permanent small cable box uh, within its scope by casting aside the requirement that a physical invasion be permanent. This is a fairly radical position, actually, in a good way. Uh, Roberts focuses on a number of precedents that the court has long ignored in order to leave untouched that permanence uh, requirement, which does not appear in the takings clause or as uh, uh, takings were understood, property rights violations were understood uh, at common law. But Roberts does get something wrong. He discusses the development of pure regulatory takings, meaning where there's no physical component; it's just a regulation. And he claims that this, these did not emerge until a case from 1922 called Pennsylvania Coal versus Mahan. But not so. Courts before then simply didn't call regulations regulatory takings, uh, but were still more than willing to invalidate them for failure to prevent or stop. A public a public harm resulting from a private use either under the takings clause or the due process clause and so cases like uh, foundational cases like Muggler versus Kansas in uh, the 1880s or Pompelli versus Green Bay Company from the 1870s uh, which ma- marked the court's gradual recognition of what we now call regulatory takings uh, compensable ones uh, uh, at that um, But anyway, that's for a future case, because this was a physical appropriation. This wasn't a a pure regulation. That's the the debate wasn't whether a purely regulatory, a pure regulation was compensable uh, or not. Uh, moreover uh, Roberts uh, responds or preempts or rebuts uh, or prebuts uh, uh, concerns that this opens up uh, any regulation that affects property whatsoever including you know health inspectors building code the police chasing a criminal that that opens the government up to taking his claims instead he, he rejects um, uh, you know he says only regulations that that prevent the owner's right to exclude in a way that is not recognized at common law. So, for example, we cannot agree that the right to exclude is an empty formality subject to modification at the government's uh, pleasure. On the contrary, it's a fundamental element of the property right. But our holding does nothing to efface the distinction between trespass And takings, so isolated physical invasions not undertaken pursuant to a granted right of access are properly pursued as individual tort claims rather than a violation of uh, Fifth Amendment property right. Or many government-authorized physical invasions will not amount to takings because they're consistent with long-standing background restrictions. This is where exercises of the police power, literally with the police chasing uh, a criminal uh, or or also uh, 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 health inspections. Uh, when you build a new uh, building, getting the, the the building code inspector on there to to look at it—that just one time. It's you know not a repeated thing for many hours a a day for you know forever for 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 much of the year. And finally, the government may require property owners to cede a right of access as a condition of receiving certain benefits, like a license of of, of some kind. This is a fancy way of saying that uh, plenty of public invasions. If not stopping or preventing a public harm, instead pass muster under Nolan and Dolan. In other words, uh, these are cases about what kind of exactions government can demand to get a a permit to to use your property in a a certain way. Um, uh, In other words, there is a long-standing background principle of common law that you don't even have a right to use your property in a way that may cause harm to others, Uh, a nuisance or uh, what economists might call a negative externality, you know, I'm just like playing with dynamite on my property. Well, you know, that might cause some harm, or or spewing, you know, dumping noxious chemicals into the river, or or, or other things like that. That can be properly regulated without being a violation of the the right to exclude, or a per se taking, or or anything else. So Roberts uh, concludes, unlike a mere trespass, the regulation here grants a formal entitlement to physically invade the growers' land. Unlike a law enforcement search, no traditional background principle of property law requires the growers to admit union organizers onto their premises. And unlike standard health and safety inspections, the access regulation is not germane to any benefit provided to agricultural employers or any risk posed to the public. In other words, Although this r- labor regulation may be good public policy, may uh, you know, uh, be for the public use, it's not a traditional limitation on property rights and so merits just compensation. And this could affect uh, all sorts of modern or postmodern progressive regulatory schemes, but not traditional regulatory schemes. Now, what could Roberts have done better? because I agree with uh, uh, his opinion as far as it went. It was great to do a per se taking. In fact, I argued a case in a circuit court for the first time ever this past June. It was a property rights case, and I was there as amicus to provide the uh, purest extreme position arguing the per se taking, even though the party we were supporting had one actually on a regulatory taking or unconstitutional exaction uh, below. But lo and behold, once Cedar Point came out, uh, that buttressed my radical position in that case, and so I called up counsel and said, you know, make sure you're getting the, the 28J letter, which is what lawyers filed to update the court after they've argued of, of latest developments. And he was on the ball with that. So I fully agree with the development here as far as it goes. But he, Roberts could still have, have done even better, uh, because what are lower courts to do with an inexhaustive laundry list of so-called traditional common law privileges to access private property? Listing them just assures the skeptical that the basic functions of government will persist. Uh, even as the right to exclude is afforded greater protection. Well, that's good. But a better approach would be to determine what it is about these background limitations on the right to exclude and other elements of ownership in that bundle of sticks that enable some public trespasses without compensation. As Spiegelman and Sisk uh, explain in their Supreme Court Review article, it would have been better to use the classical liberal harm versus benefit distinction to determine when a police power regulation is a regulatory taking. That is, if you're preventing public harm, uh, then that's a regulation and, and, and generally uh, would be uh, not require compensation. If you're conferring a public benefit, like the benefit of you know labor law or unionization or, or what have you, well, then that's a taking. I mean, it might be a proper use of eminent domain. It might be a proper use of the police power, but it requires uh, just compensation so um, You know two and a half cheers for Cedar Point and as I said, this is a a significant uh, property rights case that uh, I think will have implications uh, To the good in my view in different regulatory schemes, but will not kind of endanger or, or engender the parade of horribles about you know pushing back on uh, uh, you know industrial revolution era style uh, regulations of, of health and safety thanks very much All right.
0: Thank you, Ilya. Um, I want to remind everyone watching online that they can submit questions uh, via, directly via the event webpage at Cato's website or on Twitter using the hashtag Cato SCOTUS, CatoSCOTUS, Um uh I, I think we should get right into questions if there are any in the room, uh, front row or second to front row. Thank you. Uh, can you uh, wait, for, wait for the mic? and then could everyone in the room uh, give their name and affiliation?
5: Hi, my name is Lisa Sornan. Um, my organization, the state and local legal center filed an amicus brief in Caniglia. My question is for Professor Slavogan. Um, so I, I love Justice Roberts hypothetical at the argument and I loved it in his opinion because it was something I'd, I could personally relate to. Um, as a child, we lived next to an elderly woman we were very close with, who would disappear for days at a time. And I can still feel the panic that I would feel when she wasn't around. It never occurred to me why did my parents not feel the panic or or express it. I learned as an adult she was an alcoholic and she would binge drink for a few days and so they knew she was okay. Anyway, but I think the point is, it's something we can all relate to. I think the nub though of his scenario is that um, it looks like probably there's an emergency there, but no one knows. And and that's the problem, and so um, Kavanaugh says, okay, so my test is going to be, is there a reasonable basis to think there might be an emergency? If we take away your notion of like there's someone probably better to call, because of course for the old lady there is someone better to call. I mean, just another neighbor maybe who's willing to knock the door now. Um, but if how do you, how did I like that? That I thought that felt satisfying to me. How do you feel about that? Um, okay, it's we don't think there's an emergency. We don't know for sure that there's an immediate emergency, but we think there might be. So, is reasonable basis enough?
3: Yeah, of course. My first reaction is you sort of um, finessed on me. I would say send in a social worker or a substance abuse counselor as opposed to a cop. But assuming we're going to use the cops, um, it is true. Kavanaugh, who wrote a concurring opinion in this case, did. Um, suggests that the state would not be probable cause, but ra- rather reason to believe, which I guess he's thinking is a lower standard than probable cause, um, to get at this idea of well, we can never be sure, and hey, it's better to err on the side of intervention just to avoid death or, or serious bodily injury. Well, of course, the mental health system has been dealing with this for ages, And the Supreme Court, as a constitutional matter, requires clear and convincing evidence that serious bodily injury will occur in the near future, or you may not commit or intervene against a person involuntarily. So at least in that area of the law, uh, now it does have to do with civil commitment as opposed to going inside a house, but nonetheless, the court has developed a fairly stringent test. The way I finesse it, I have to admit it is a bit of finesse. I keep the probable cause standard, but you may have noticed, uh, though I said it very quickly, so you may not have, probable cause to believe physical harm has occurred or is likely to occur. So what's probable cause of a likelihood? It might be Kavanaugh's reason to believe. Um, The bottom line is there has to be some concrete evidence that there's imminent harm and actually there's a case called Sanders which the court took a little bit later um, which Kavanaugh said is another case where there should have been intervention Um, and I agree under my formulation but I also have seen a lot of lower court cases where the police just barge in because as I said before there's a loud noise or hey there's a door ajar we better check that out. Or they knock to serve process and someone doesn't come to the door within two minutes, so they go right in. And people sue, they're not criminals at all, they sue over this kind of stuff because they're, they're pl- understandably very upset.
5: Scammers has the benefit of a baby crying. Yeah. That's the last thing
3: that makes a baby crying and a six year old also well, yeah, in same. trouble.
6: <clears throat> yeah.
0: Uh, Trevor, back there.
6: Hi, Trevor Burst, Cato Institute. Adam, I was wondering if you would fill us in on the subsequent litigation and the footnote that you had me add on your article and what had happened in the Epic versus Apple uh, due to the Google decision.
2: Yeah, great. Um, So, um, uh, and so as I mentioned, um, Justice Breyer's uh, embrace of fair use to get around the copyrightability issue ended up creating a very expansive notion of fair use. Um, that what you know what counts as transformative if you're just shifting it to another type of use and diminishing the type of protection, and that this was immediately recognized as being somewhat of a radical uh, change to the doctrine. Um, there are several tells in the opinion in the classic poker sense of it, that he recognizes this because he actually has to put in a line at the very end of his opinion where he says, by the way, um, nothing we're saying here is meant to overrule any of our prior fair use opinions. (laughs) Well, you wouldn't have to say that if there wasn't rising to anyone in the the doctrine that this contradicts other prior opinions. Um, And of course, people started to run with it. It came up um, actually the very next month, so the decision came down in April and May. It actually came up in the epic Antitrust lawsuit against um, against Apple because Apple was in part relying upon its IP rights and its and its code and its App Store. And on the stand, the, the Apple's expert had to confess, um, "Well, given Google View Oracle, we may not have we d- we probably don't have copyright protection in our in our code as as a defense anymore." Um, but more significantly, there was a uh, other case that was uh, that had been occurring over the past couple years in which the uh, the estate of Prince had sued the estate of Warhol for the unauthorized use of a photo of Prince. You know how Warhol takes photos and converts them, the famous Campbell's Soup example. Um, and Warhol, the Warhol estate originally had argued fair use um, and they had lost um, in a decision in uh, ear- earlier this year. And when the Google decision came down, the Warhol estate immediately filed the, the uh Ilya was it the letter J the twenty eight J twenty eight uh, saying hey there's a Supreme Court decision that, that affects your fair use analysis and the and the court ordered rebriefing on the fair use analysis given the Google case and and um and ultimately just ruled actually just about two weeks ago that no our 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 decision was originally correct. However, um you might think okay so they that uh, they the courts are cabining the Google decision to it to just the API uh, uh, apis in the declaring code but six, 60 law professors filed an amicus brief on behalf of the Warhol state saying Google has changed everything um, and you know and it 's not limited just to computer code um, and and so you're going to see organizations, policy organizations, and, well, and well, law Well, you know, Adam, 60,
4: 60 law professors plus five Supreme Court votes gets you a change in the law.
2: <laughs> They're gonna, so you're going to see continued pressure from this very expansive decision on judges, uh, from lawyers, from policy organizations, and from, and from academics to, to, to embrace and, and drive this, this, this decision into other areas of copyright law.
0: Other questions in the room behind Trevor?
6: Hi, Adam. a follow-up question.
3: Could you give your name and affiliation? Trey Mayfield, jurist Day, former neighbor of Trevor's. Um, to what extent do you think that what the court was doing here is akin to what it was doing a couple of years ago in the gerrymandering decision and just saying, you know
6: what? We don't want to deal with this anymore. We are not tech savvy and it's easier to, I'm, to I'm punt making... than it is to continue having to deal it. with something that okay. we're, we really don't understand.
2: Uh, you're asking in the context of the Google decision? Well, I mean, it would have been, it, it, but that's not. It, that would be. A, would they, the court does do that at times. Uh, you know, it, you'd be fool not to acknowledge that. But they didn't do that in this case. They actually. I mean, Justice Breyer embraced a full-throated, very expansive notion of a fair use defense in the context of computer software, to the point that it's impossible now to imagine how anyone with a computer who has written. Um, an API program, um, you know, it, and even in some other context, some other type of computer code that you could get copyright copyright protection, um, because because you hear you had a direct commercial use, creating a direct competing product in the marketplace that actually killed off Oracle's licensing revenue. Their licensing revenue. This is not mentioned by Breyer. You find this in Justice Thomas's dissent. Their licensing revenue after Google. Uh, copied the 11,500 lines, dropped 97.5% because every other, because all of their current licensees went and either said, well, we're just going to stop paying you, and you can't sue us because we're just going to claim fair use, like the way Google is, Um, and Google won on this now. So it's really hard to see how you could have copyright protection now for at least an API and potentially other types of computer programs. So this isn't the Supreme Court punting. Um, in fact, I thought that this might even be Justice Breyer swansong. I thought he might be retiring, given that this was such a, mm. a full throated application of this position that he had advocated for in 1970. That this is maybe like, I'm going, I'm going to go out on a really strong note here. Um, but, um, but that doesn't, but I was, I was wrong in that prediction. <laughs> I want to check if we
0: have any online questions.
1: Uh, we do. This is on uh, Cedar Point, um, again from Anonymous. Um, <laughs> What would be the next log? Is that lo-
4: actually anonymous or is it from you, the co-author of the article that I was supposed to be <laughs> describing?
1: It, it is anonymous, but I'll, I'll, I'll add a little cleanup, so uh, that's my contribution. What would be the next logical case after Cedar Point? Um, for the Supreme Court, um, do they just sort of do what uh, what Roberts did this time, which is they take each one on a case-by-case where they're just answering, oh, this is a background limitation, or uh, background principle, um, and for the lower courts, wh- wh- what does it mean if uh, all they're given is this concept of a traditional traditional limitation or background uh, principle? It doesn't really quite give any guidance to the lower courts.
4: Right. Well, the Supreme Court in property law over the last 20 years, there's sort of been a pattern, it's all gone in, in one direction in the sense that they clarify with different kinds of takings claims that, yes, indeed, this is a taking that's compensable, and whether flooding uh, as opposed to, you know, temporary flooding. You know, there, there was a case uh, 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 uh agricultural... U.S. Fish and Wildlife Commission versus... Oh gosh, I'm getting all these agencies wrong in the case names, but anyway, it was it was like there, there had been precedent that permanent floodings are takings and temporary physical invasions are takings. Well, what about? Temporary floods and you know seemingly an easy case ended up being I think five four that it, yes it was a a taking or the horn case the, uh, the raisins pri- as, app- as applied to personal property can personal property be taken even if you're only taking title or you know rather than physical possession the answer was that to yes so all these kind of neat little they're almost like law school. Hypotheticals. Uh, And so the next time the court takes up, you know, is something a per se taking? Yeah, I'm sure it will, you know, declare that it is, but who knows what that might be. For a while, we are going to have, though, a lot of claims in the lower courts about different kinds of state regulatory schemes. Not everyone is as aggressive as California, but certainly you can imagine in the environmental area, in uh, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, uh, the pretext of, of food safety, but actually being more protectionist, I, I you know, l- lots of different things that you could imagine that's not kind of something that wouldn't have occurred to a regulator to implement uh, 100 years ago, 80 years ago, uh, before kind of a more modern conceptions of uh, government power to contravene economic and property rights.
0: Other questions in the room? Yeah. Uh, fourth row, uh, over in the corner here.
6: Yeah. Pat Spann, uh, retired government. I had a, a, personal, a property question. I was wondering at dawn, on me when I was sitting on a deer stand a couple of years ago and on my property in New York state, is there some height of that trespassing by a drone is, um, you know, I was thinking a drone came over my head and bothered me while I was hunting. That's probably a time to shoot the drone, but the, uh, is that allowed? And what, I mean, you know, you have property rights on the ground. Does it extend up a couple hundred feet or any feet at all?
4: Yeah, historically, it's supposed to, you know, there's a Latin phrase that says, like, from the ground all the way up to the heavens. yeah column rule. Yeah, go ahead, say it, say it, say it.
3: Well, I know this because I'm a Fourth Amendment scholar. I don't know nothing about takings. But yeah, there is a property right, I call him which gives you authority over your property to a particular height. Actually, it's supposed to be ad infinitum. Of course, um, of course
4: Roman uh, aerospace technology wasn't very advanced. Right, and so. so they, you know, with the advent of, of uh, airplanes and, and such, that that was kind of uh, amended. Uh, although, there's still a case from the 40s called uh, United States versus Cosby that talked about uh, air flight invasions that are equivalent to land invasions. It's also in the Fourth Amendment area, Kylo, uh, where if you're you know, flying over using uh, infrared sensors, that's a violation. So yeah, there is some limitation on drones. What exactly the height is, that uh, I don't know. You'd have to be able to prove some sort of, uh, you know, beyond, nobody's going to bring a case where it's just purely nominal, I suppose. So they have to be either in a Fourth Amendment context with surveillance, or it'd have to be, you know, the drone crashes, or, or there's you know, some damage before one of these cases is going to arise. We have another online
1: question. I, I promise I'm not overloading the panel with Cedar Point questions. There are actually are oh, sure. a lot of them. <laughs> um, Is
4: this from Spam Siegelman? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah no. Marks mustache. <laughs> uh, would any of the pandemic lockdown measures, such as uh, forced business closures uh, and restrictions that otherwise impaired contracts and restricted the abilities of business to operate, Would would any of those ever involve uh, a, a taking requiring compensation?
4: I don't think that Cedar Point changed pandemic law because it asked Cedar Point was about what constitutes a per se taking and whether a particular kind of invasion did. The pandemic cases are about whether the government was justified to such an extreme in exercising its power. You know, without the pandemic, the government uh, couldn't just order lockdowns, uh, presumably, uh, and so. Um, yeah, I don't think this is going to change those kinds of cases. One
2: one, one exception, maybe? Yeah. Which is the uh, CDC's eviction moratorium. Well, this, well no, no, no. The because, CDC eviction moratorium
4: is is based on uh, uh, federalism that the federal government... Oh, no, it
2: was decided because they didn't reach it substantively. But let's say... Congress passes a law because that was the issue. It was a non-delegation case, right? So, um, and they said, Congress didn't authorize you to do this. So let's imagine now Congress then steps in and passes a law that allows them to have that expansive eviction moratorium. Well then, Once a landlord has decided that a tenant should be evicted, the tenant is now no longer a tenant, they're a trespasser. And so you have a law mandating that you allow a trespasser to stay on your property. I think that that would would be implicated under Cedar Point.
4: I'll take that as a friendly amendment to my response.
2: (laughs) Questions? Uh, We have a front row on this side
0: here.
6: Yeah, uh, my name is Stephen Keat. Uh, I'm a retired U.S. diplomat. And specifically, I'm an economic cone officer, and a lot of my career was spent on intellectual property rights issues. So you can guess who I'm directing my question at. Um, The United States has signed on to a lot of international conventions and IPR, and we use the WTO through TRIPS, as a enforcement mechanism. I, now, I could see a situation in the future where a US firm could be going and taking you know, the copyrighted IPR of someone else, computer code, and going and using it under this doctrine, and then we would be in violation of international conventions and of TRIPS. Uh, do you see that as being a concern?
2: oh that 's really that 's a really interesting question I, I initially thought you might be going to the IP waiver issue uh, before the world trade organization but um, that 's a very interesting issue This issue actually is being litigated in other jurisdictions as well so there 's a there is actually a uh, not literally a companion case but a a, a a very similar case being litigated in england by sas institute sas institute does the same thing that uh, Sun Microsystems or Oracle did, it creates it, it creates this kind of under the hood software for businesses to use in the operation of computer programs more generally, and that's being litigated in that country as well under the same issue of whether this counts as a fair use or not, and, and someone directly copying this kind of direct uh, program to program interface program. Um, and um, And since fair use is part of every Major uh, jurisdictions' copyright system. Um, you know, it would be difficult to see how this might run us in um, in trouble with the with trips, the the IP. Uh, treaty that's that's enforced at the world trade organization um so because i think it's just would be arguably well this is an interpretation of our fair use doctrine and and especially if other jurisdictions follow a similar type of interpretation um because the copyrightability of computer software programs has been a serious issue of legal and policy debate um not just in the united states but actually in every major developed country um, in fact, the United States, for instance, is the only country that actually provides patent protection for, for computer software programs, which is why copyright protection, most compu- companies rely on copyright protection because that that they can get, uh, in other countries, they can't get patent protection. More questions? Uh, second row, right up here. It's an interesting question.
6: Two quick questions. One is for Adam and one is for Chris. Could, could you give your name? Fred and? Fred uh, Boning from the Daily Ripple. First one is about electronic music, and and how does you, did that decision affect that? And for Christopher, the one, what is the conditions of a wellness check, which is different?
2: Um, yeah, I it, it, this is the problem is that the the opinion is so expansive, but for that one line that says this doesn't apply to any any other areas of law. You know it could potentially be extended because it was argued under the peer to peer file sharing cases well this is this is transformative. we're actually sharing music in a way that hadn't been done before in a new format and new context, and that fits perfectly the argument by Google that we took Java and put it into a new type of open source mobile mobile phone platform system that had never been done before so um and Trust me, if you've thought of that, there are people who are thinking of that issue and are trying to figure out if they can try to exploit that hole. and yeah. And so this is going to be, this is going to all have to end up being litigated, just like it was relitigated in the Warhol v. Prince case over this past summer. Um, so I guess at the end of the day, the lesson is the lawyers win again, because uh, they're the ones who are gonna have to decide this.
3: Yeah, on wellness checks, I mean, obviously one aspect of that that might be different than the situations I was talking about is there's often consent. In other words, it's part of an agreement between government and the individual but if there is not it's not consensual then what i said i think applies that first of all why the police as opposed to social services Uh, and in any event um if there is in fact uh no emergency then there shouldn't be any kind of intervention at least by the police
0: more questions in the room uh let's see on the aisle over on this side
5: Uh, Jim
3: Duholm, unaffiliated. This is a question for Ilya. Uh, As I understand the facts, in Cedar Point, there was a a business interruption as well as an occupation of uh, real estate. Was that aspect of it involved in the case? Is it a separate taking? Does it go to damages?
6: Is it tough luck? Uh,
4: It goes to damages. I assume that's going to be now litigated on on remand. But yes, their their claim for injunctive relief... um well, actually, they they asked for declarative and injunctive relief. Um, I'm gonna have to go back. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna call Lifeline, Sam Spiegelman, <laughs> who uh, wrote about the case. Do you remember if there was an aspect? I know It thing, a, didn't is, make it to the Supreme Court, but is there a damages claim that remains? The phone a friend or ask the audience.
1: I, I didn't even see the uh, a damage claim yeah. at the lower level, so I don't think it was even litigated yet.
0: Yeah. Sam, you have an online question.
1: I do, and it's not about Cedar Point. Um, it's for. Professor Slabogan, Um while social, work, and this is from Ponzio Oliviero of National University. Non-anonymous. Yes. <laughs> uh, while social workers may be better equipped to handle a lot of mental health issues, um, what about when the offender is violent or armed or already using force? And where's that line drawn and, you know, in, in the, in the heat of the moment, who draws that line? Right,
3: well that can be difficult. I think 911 dispatchers have to be trained how to triage. So for instance, the CAHOOTS program that I mentioned before, they get about 24,000 calls, they respond to about 24,000 calls a year, just in Eugene, Oregon. That's about 20% of all the calls. And they only call in the police, they only called in the police about 150 times out of those 24,000. So what happens is mental health professionals, or people like them, are the first responders. Then if something starts happening, that requires force, they call in the police. And that seems to work very well in Eugene, Oregon. Now, it might not work in a big city environment, uh, but that would be a brief response to that kind of question. Certainly, if, you, if there's going to be danger to human beings, the police need to be considered as an option.
0: All right. I think that's, unfortunately, going to be all the time we have for this panel. I apologize to any questions uh, we didn't get. Uh, we're going to move directly into our next panel at 2.15, so I've been told to tell all of you to stay in your seats, keep your seat seatbelts fashioned, do not... Do not <laughs> wander around the aisles. uh, And I want to thank our three panelists.